In the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, there are some interesting verses of Scripture. Verses that I um, am reminded of when I go back to Monday, Texas to try to preach. To those folks, I'm either this the little kid, still a little kid that grew up there, or I'm the mean kid nobody liked, you know. And I think you'll see what I mean when I read these verses. Sixth chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 5. And he, would, and he, Jesus, went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. If it had been announced this week that a prophet would preach today in this pulpit, probably the image or the picture that would immediately come to your mind would be that of an old man with a long brown robe and sandals and a long white beard and perhaps holding a shepherd's staff. Well, that's our picture of a prophet. And probably you'd think that the, what the guy was going to do was going to forecast the future, foretell the future, because our idea of a prophet is kind of a religious fortune teller. It's a tragic misunderstanding of the biblical view of a prophet. For a prophet in biblical times was a man who spoke God's word to the people. It was a word that was based upon the righteousness of God. And oftentimes he did predict the future, but it just was an outgrowth of what he knew about God. And so Amos, when he saw the poor exploited and mistreated, he said, God is going to judge you. And that prediction was based on his knowledge of what God thought about the poor. And Isaiah preached the righteousness of God, and that's the theme of his prophecy, the righteousness of God. And so if a nation does not honor righteousness and right living, that nation would be judged of God. It just, you know, just going to happen that way. And you don't have to be clairvoyant to believe that or to know that. All you have to know is just what God is like. Now I thought about donning an old brown robe today and wearing a pair of thongs and getting me a white beard, but I didn't think you'd be ready for that quite yet, and uh, I thought that might be a little much, and yet I, I think that a voice, a prophet's voice needs to be heard in the land today from the pulpit and especially from this one. 
But what if a prophet came today to speak on this graduation week at Southeastern? And what if a prophet came to have a word from God to these graduating seniors and to us? What would he say? What would be God's word to them and to us? I suppose that we all have our little list of what he would say. As a matter of fact, some of you might envy my position today. You'd like to have a good shot, you know, at, uh, at saying a word or two to these graduating seniors both in college and high school. And yet it's my turn, it's my opportunity, and I just want to share with you three things I believe this morning that a prophet would share, not in angry tones, not in wrath, but in tones of genuine concern and interest and compassion. I believe he would say today that we need to take heed to the needs of the third world powers, the third world. You know, of course, that our world is divided today. Tremendous, there is tremendous division. But it's not so much divided between the communists and the free worlds, not so much between the east and the west anymore. The division runs along the lines of the haves and the have-nots. The phrase the third world is a phrase that was used just a few years ago to identify those nations that lie between communist domination and those nations that are free and democratic. And these third world nations are impoverished and largely underdeveloped and they're hungry. What are we going to do about these people that exist in the third world? That's a focus of much concern. You'll find these nations in Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Central and South America. G.W. MacLeod, a Scottish author, Scottish uh, writer, said that the one problem confronting the communities of the world in the modern age is how are we going to share bread? An American writer by the name of Edward Rogers in a book called Poverty on a Small Planet puts it simply, most of the people of our world are hungry. And Sherwood, Sherwood Wirt has written a book called The Social Conscience of the Evangelical. And in this book he says, newspapers tell us that every day 10,000 people die of starvation or malignant malnutrition more than in any other epoch in the history of the world and that one half of the world's four billion people live in perpetual hunger and that the family pet dog in the U.S. eats better and more than the average Indian laborer. What are we going to do about these people who are in the, in the third world countries who are impoverished, the have-nots, the disenfranchised, the leftovers of society. I believe that God is concerned about them, the God I'm acquainted with. The God who heard the cries of Israel down in Egypt must hear the moans of the suffering of this world. And if he were to send a prophet for a prophet's voice to remind people of his concern for this hungry and, and dying world, he wouldn't send him to the government halls. I'm convinced of that. For that's not where the, where the answer lies. I think he'd send that prophet to where God's people are assembled and to where young people are considering moving out into the world in their life's vocations. And I think to them he would speak through the prophet and say, don't forget those who are shut off from your prosperity and your opportunities. Don't forget them. 
It's hard for us to imagine this morning, having never lived in need, having always been in affluence and luxury, how people like that live. A man by, by the name of Henry Jacobs went to visit the Taj Mahal. He said, we literally gasped in the beauty of that place. And he said, after we made our tour of the Taj Mahal, we took a box lunch and went out to a park nearby, just in the shadows of that magnificent structure. And he said, while we were eating our box lunch, a starving mother came with her bony child. And he said, as she drew near us, the Indian guide motioned for her to get back. But she came anyway, and we allowed her to come. He said, you know what she did? She stood there and waited for our garbage. Now, who is going to do anything about the needs of this impoverished and suffering world? Who's going to do anything about that? I remember two years ago as I was with some of these young people and we rode this bus, tour bus, down through the city streets of New York, New York City. And we listened to this guide tell us that of the people who lived in those uh, concrete and asphalt jungles in crime-infested, crime-disease-infested barrios and slums, how that the cost of living was just on a rampage there and and crime and problems existed in that city that had already gone bankrupt. And I thought as we drove through those projects that housed more people than will ever live in Durant in our lifetime. And I thought to myself, who, how would anybody ever make an impact on this place? And he told us how most of them were sustained by the government and, and on welfare and taken care of by, 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 the, by the government. Is the government going to take care of these needs of the people of our world? I don't think we can expect that, for the government doesn't have the compassion of Christ. I think the people who are going to do something about the needs of our world are the people who see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ and who take seriously the words of Jesus when he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was in prison and you visited me. Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And I believe that the answer to the suffering of this world begins with young men and women who feel God is in it for them to contribute to the needs of the hungry and the destitute of our world. Now what can be done about it? I don't have the answer. I don't have answers this morning. I'm just burdened with, with the need as you are. I don't have the answer, but I think it begins with an understanding that the solution to the world's problems do, does not begin in a political solution, but in a personal involvement. You know what the greatest success story is, the 20th century? I'm going to share you, with you something I believe ser sincerely in my heart. You know what the greatest success story in the 20th century is? It is not our technological advancement. It is not the fact that we went to the moon. The greatest success story of the 20th century is not found in the fields of education and, and technology and, and transportation. The greatest success story of the 20th century is in Christian missions. Now we don't hear too much about Christian missions from our churches today. But at the turn of this century, young people were going all over this world spreading in the name of Jesus Christ, spreading the gospel. 
And I know that we look at the, at the, at the decline of Christianity in the Western world and we feel like that that's the way it is all over the world, but it really isn't. You can go into places in Africa this morning where there are literally hundreds and hundreds of congregations where one generation ago there was not one Christian. And you'll understand that the hunger of this world is not just for physical bread, but the hunger of this world is for spiritual food. And where there have been men and women who have fanned out over this globe in the name of Jesus Christ, planting the gospel of Jesus as the answer to man's needs, there has been tremendous success. It's a matter of personal involvement. And somebody reminded me recently that Jesus never told His disciples to pray for sinners, not one time. He never told His disciples to pray for sinners, but He did tell His disciples to pray for laborers. And this is what He said. He said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. I pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. And so on my knees this week I have been agonizing over this special sermon that I was going to have the opportunity to preach. And I have been praying that God will send forth laborers into this harvest. There was a time not long ago when a train derailed outside the city of London and people were mortally injured. The fireman and the conductor was injured and a surgeon perchance, a physician, happened to be on that, on that train. And he knelt over this conductor and fireman and this is what he said in some despair. I could save these men if I had my instruments. I tell you, God is big enough to save this world if he had some instruments. God is big enough to save this world if he had some hands. But as the poet said, we, he has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead them in the way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell them how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. And so I'm asking you, will you be his hands? Will you be his feet? Will you be his eyes? Will you be his tongue? And what I'm talking about this morning is not directed just to these high school students. It is, that, that's peripheral to what I want to say. It's directed to all of us. Lee shared with me this, this week a speech that Peggy's mom had, 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 had spoken to a group of uh, women on the mission fields, on the mission field in Puerto Rico to a, to a wives retreat. And, he, and she told about this couple by the name of John and Edna Payne. They were 50 years old and they went to Haiti on a visit perchance. And they saw these children in Haiti starving and impoverished. John and Edna Payne had already retired. They had considerable money, wealth. And they became burdened about these children who were hungry. So they went back to Kentucky and they sold their palatial home. He was a collector of antiques. He had antique cars. He had a buffalo herd. He had Tennessee walking horses. He had antique furniture. You name it, he had it. He sold it all so they could have money to sustain their work. And they went into Haiti and they live in a little four-room, scarcely furnished house. And every month they take 30 Haitian children and they give them something to eat. And they teach them hygiene. And they teach their mothers how to care for them. And they're pouring their life out there. That's what I'm talking about. And I want to say parenthetically as I speak to these young people this morning, how, how do these young people, how is it that they are right where they are today? It's because men and women 
in the past. Mothers and fathers and Sunday school teachers have committed their life to teaching them in Sunday school and RAs, etc., teaching them in the home. I'm here to tell you that as my own personal testimony that the greatest impact that was ever made on my life was made in the RA chapter when I was a kid growing up. My mother was the counselor of the RAs and I got more out of that than Sunday school and church put together. I, not, that's not true of every person, but I'm bearing witness to RAs. And I want to tell you this morning a burden that's on my heart. We've got an RA chapter where there's nobody who will be a counselor in there. I mean fourth and fifth and sixth grade boys who roam the halls of this church on Wednesday night because no man will go in there with them. Surely there's an adult man who will take that chapter. Surely there's a father who has time to do that. Because who knows but out of that chapter, out of that group of boys on Wednesday night, there will come somebody who will make an impact on this suffering world. Are you going to let them go without some guidance? Surely there's somebody here who will take that group. And as I drove down Elm Street this morning, I saw this little kid playing in the yard out there. And I thought to myself, somebody needs to tell that little boy should be in Sunday, some Sunday school teacher, some pastor needs to go to that home this week and tell that little boy he needs to know about Jesus. Surely there's some of us who have become involved in that kind of thing. Now, 14% of the people carry the load of this church. I'm talking about those of you whose involvement is nothing more than just an occasional visit to the worship service. Oh, the need of this world cries out to us today. And I, think, I think if a prophet stood here, and I, I'm going to hurry. They said if I didn't cut this short, they was going to bear the heat down on me until I did. I'm going to hurry because it's hot. I think if a prophet were here this morning, he'd say something about the threat of nuclear war. Now, don't turn me off. You've never heard that from this pulpit as long as I've been here. Don't turn me off this morning and say, well, he sounds like some bleeding heart liberal to me. You don't have to be a liberal. You don't have to be a peacenik, a demonstrator in the streets with a placard. You don't have to be an Old Testament prophet to know that if the new kid on the block I'm talking about, by the new kid on the block, I'm talking about these emerging nations that are holding the balance of powers, and their, their leaders, the leaders of these emerging nations, the Khomeini's and the Qaddafi's of the world, you don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal to know that if these men get these nuclear toys in their hands, it is just a matter of time until their devastation is rained upon this earth. It's just a matter of time until we all live under that. I'm not talking about, I'm not, don't, don't think I'm just uh, making mention of this because it's fashionable or I'm caught up in the campaign rhetoric of 84. People have been talking about this threat since Ju July the 16th, 1945, for it was then that a light brighter than a thousand suns illumined the sands of eastern New Mexico and a large mushroom cloud emerged from the earth and one scientist standing there wept and said, Oh my God, we have created hell. And I'm here to tell you that in the 40 years that have happened and passed since that day, we have inched closer and closer to that devastation. It's true. Did you know that the Soviet Union and America have nuclear warheads that equate to four tons of TNT for every man, woman, and child presently alive on planet Earth. 
And they have enough destructive power to destroy the globe 27 times. And this nuclear power and these nuclear warheads are proliferating at rapid pace. There are six nations this morning who have experimented and, and have exploded nuclear devices. And there are 12 other nations, it is said, that are capable of doing it. And there are nine more nations who will have the bomb in six years. And there are four more nations who will have it in seven to ten years, including Argentina and Libya. And I read recently that the Soviet Union, if the Soviet Union and the United States got into a war today, it would last 30 minutes and in 30 days, 90% of the people on earth would be dead. Now that bothers me a little bit, just to be honest with you. Rabbi Siparot, the greatest rabbi in Jewish New York City was preaching in his synagogue about a month ago a sermon entitled, When Was the Last Time You Cried? And he said, using that text from Jeremiah of the weeping prophet, he said, when was the last time you cried? And before he got ready to move on, he said a young man stood up at the back of his synagogue and said, I weep today. He said, I wept when I saw the movie the day after, television movie. He said, I wept when I saw that movie on Karen Silkwood. And he said, I'm weeping now because I fear the future to which I enter. And I weep today because I'm worried about the children I will bring into this world. That concerns me a little bit. You've seen that Allstate commercial, you're in good hands with Allstate. Allstate. What, if, what if these demented deranged personalities, power-hungry madmen somehow got their hands on a nuclear device and were able to rain that device down upon the, any part of the earth from orbiting satellites and missiles. Why? It is obvious. You don't have to be smart to understand that the verdict of final extermination would be final. That bothers me a little bit. I'm concerned this morning because I have children and I will have grandchildren who are going into this world. I'm concerned this morning when I read articles in Psychology Today called Nuclear Fear and the subtitle, What It's Like to Grow Up Afraid That You Want. It bothers me some. Now what is the answer? I don't have the answer. But I think the answer began, might begin with prayer. Somehow I feel urged this morning to lead us in that prayer. I think the answer might begin in prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. You know, that's not just idle talk. One of the greatest prayers ever prayed was prayed by a little girl. She was out riding with her father one day and he let her sit on his lap and he held her hands on the steering wheel and helped her guide the car. That night in her goodnight prayer she said, Dear Lord, put your hands on the hands of the president and help him guide our nation. It might begin with prayer. And I'm reminded this morning that Sodom was spared of its destruction. Sodom would have been spared of its destruction had there been ten righteous men. And a thought occurs to me that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land and will answer their prayers. It might be that some of us need to get right with God today, beginning this little old place out here in Durant that the President of the United States doesn't even know exists. 
One last word, please, and you've been so faithful to hear. Something that's been boiling like a cauldron in my heart for months. I believe that if a prophet were in this place this morning, this is what he'd say. I think he'd say, I'm concerned about the decline of faith. About the decline of faith among the young and the old. A university professor once said, I've got my students, I have one-third are Protestant, one-third are Catholic, and one-third are Jewish, and three-fourths are agnostic. What he meant was that even though we have a religious prof profession, that these young people in his university had no, nothing really concrete to believe in. And he said, many young people come into my office every week and say to me, give me something to believe in. Give me some foundation to stand on. Give me something to trust. And I believe with all my heart this morning that that when you read through the Bible, I mean, even in the, in the book of Psalms, God says through the psalmist, I take no delight in your power. I take no delight in your nuclear devices. I take no, light, no delight in your, in your strength. I take delight in your weakness that causes you to turn to me in dependency and need. And you read the prophets and the prophets cry out again and again that the, need, the solution to the, to, the, to the world's need comes and one's trusting in God. Don't depend on your armies and your horses. He says, look to me. One, one student asked her teacher, you know, I don't understand how it is that, that South America could have all the natural resources, perhaps more than, than North America, with great waterways and rivers and waterfalls. And yet North America is so advanced, so much more advanced technologically. What is the answer to that? And her teacher said, well, I think it's this. I think it's because the Spanish came to South America in search of gold. And the pilgrims came to North America in search of God. Now don't just pass that off as a kind of a religious platitude. For I believe that our world is what it is because of the kind of men and women our forefathers were. And I believe that the strength of a nation rests in the faith, in the religious commitment of her people, both young and old. And so Helmut Hein, the German novelist, told the legend about a sculptor who made a sculpture and he, and he could just make anything he wanted to with his hands. And when he made this sculpture, he finished it and the sculptor spoke and said, give me a soul. Scared the man to death, the fable goes. And so he broke from the studio and ran. And the sculptor chased him down the street crying, Master, you have given me a magnificent body. Now give me a soul. What science has done is to give us a magnificent body. We have, a, we have a, a country that has a magnificent body. Somebody needs to give this country a soul, a conscience, a spiritual mindset. Somebody needs to see young people believing in God on their knees. 
Somebody needs to see old people, older people trusting in God day by day and praying to God. Children need to see parents who are teaching them the Bible around the family table and around the family altars. God, help us. Robert Kennedy wasn't half that bad. As a matter of fact, he's probably, he was probably the greatest of the Kennedys, in my opinion. He was a great mind. His favorite literary work was Tennyson's Ulysses. And his favorite line is the philosophy of his life. It goes something like this. The light began to flicker on the rocks. The long day wanes, the slow moon climbs. Above the deep moans round with many voices. Come, friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Come, friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world, but it's getting that way quickly. And so if the prophet were to speak this morning, this is what he'd say. Give your heart to God. For one of the greatest tragedies that will come in life is to come to the end of it and find yourself harassed and gray and wrinkled and realize that you had only given half your life to living. Come, friends, it's time to seek a newer world. Now, the invitation I want to give this morning is a little bit unique. It's a little different. And I've asked God, you know, I was out jogging the other day and I was praying, how could I wind this thing up so that the people out there wouldn't think I was just talking to 15 or 20 people down here saying, that's the way, preacher, amen, go get them. And God has led me to give this invitation this morning. I think what these young people need, what those who are sitting behind them need, what those who are sitting up in the back part of that balcony up there need, is to see adult people who will make some new commitments to Christian involvement. You know, when I first started preaching, that was a long time ago, I'd have parents come forward and they'd, they'd be crying. They'd say, Pastor, would you pray for my daughter? Pray for my son with me. Now it's the kids who come and say, Pastor, would you pray for my mother? Pray for my dad. And so I'm going to ask this morning, if God lays it on your heart as an adult, I'm going to ask you to come as a visible commitment before whose eyes are watching that you will commit your life to a personal involvement. It might mean Sunday school teaching. It might be to take that RA chapter that, that will grow these young boys up to be godly men and women. Godly men and these girls godly women. I may, I'm going to ask you as parents, parents, not just parents of these seniors, but as parents, period, to come, stand here, if, you're, if you feel God leading you to, to say, I want to come and make a commitment to begin a Christian, to, be, to make my home a Christian home. I'm going to teach my children the ways of God. I'm going to read them the Scripture. I'm going to pray with them, if you're not doing that already. 
I want to ask you to come and stand here to say, I don't know what I can do in this world. I don't know what I can do in Lipan or in Fort Worth or in Weatherford or in Durant. But I want to come this morning to say, whatever God leads me to do, I'm going to make a commitment of that. I just want you to come stand facing me. That'll be our invitation. Now, as you're coming this morning, and some of you will, I think, I pray you will. There may be some who will need to come to say, I want to join this church. You come and see Lee. He's going to be here at the front. Brother Johnson. And some may want to come to say, I want to, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I feel Him calling me to salvation. I've never really been saved. I have unforgiven sin. Jesus is not my Savior, but I want Him to be. I'll ask you to come today. And so I'm going to pray with all my heart that you'll respond. And then we'll begin our invitation. I'll watch for you to come as the Lord watches. Heavenly Father, oh God, I pray that this will be an occasion, God, that will remind us, us who are adults, of our responsibility, of our, our place, of the needs that are around us, oh God, that we could help. Oh God, stir us from our complacency where we sit and listen Sunday after Sunday. And we're not even faithful in our own homes to teach and to witness Christ. Oh Jesus, remind us of your word that we're the light of the world and we're not to hide it under a bushel. We're the salt of the earth, but that salt can lose its saltiness. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll draw us out of our lethargy and our complacency to a whole new commitment to personal involvement so that we'll never say again, let him do it, let her do it, let the government do it. But help us to say, oh God, oh Lord, what would you have me do? I pray this in Christ's name for His sake. Now do you understand what I invite you to do? You come and do it while we stand and sing. You come.